Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today we're going to check in with one of the lead advocates in getting Proposal 3 over the finish line in Michigan. Young women, older women, men all saying that they wanted to make sure that um, this was a right that they could have, that their children could have, that their family members could have. Reproductive rights will henceforth be enshrined in the state's constitution. We'll be talking about that a bit later, but first... Whew, few among us could say there were not at least some election night surprises in Michigan. That includes Democrats taking home all major elected statewide offices, including, of course, the race for governor. Let's listen to Gretchen Whitmer this morning after her reelection was confirmed. Over the next four years, let's build a Michigan where every person is treated with dignity, can enjoy their personal freedoms and chart their own path toward prosperity. I promise to be a governor for all of Michigan. I promise to work with anyone who wants to get things done. That wasn't all. Democrats also ran the table for the state house and the Senate majorities in both, and all three ballot proposals, which had progressive support, also received a yes from voters in the state. Here to wrap up the night are Zoe Clark, host of It's Just Politics on Michigan Radio, and Rick Pluta, senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Rick, Zoe, hi. Hello. Hello. Thank you for staying awake just a little longer to talk to us. Wouldn't miss it. Rick, you were at Governor Whitmer's uh, victory party and watch party last night the Mm. mood was shall we say danceable with a beat (laughs) actually by by the time the results came in i think everyone was just tired wanted to uh you know see you know see it uh wrapped up and no more dancing (laughs) but you know the thing is by the following morning i mean that's when the reality that is this morning that's when the reality set in that we weren't just looking at a sweep of the executive offices and we were thinking that maybe the Senate was a possibility, but that would be such a cultural shift in Lansing because the Senate was the Republican firewall for decades. But now it's the governor who, you know, civics, you know, your civics uh, classes, you'll remember, signs the bills. And then the legislature, the House and the Senate, which adopts the bills and sends them to the governor, are all under control of Democrats. That's 40 years since that happened, and that's 40 years of policy wish listing. Wow. Uh, to say there's some pent-up consumer demand among <laughs> Democrat elect- elected among officials. Yeah. Uh, Zoe, we had concessions today from Tudor Dixon, who was Gretchen Whitmer's Republican opponent, and Matt DiPerno, who was running for attorney general. Was it a surprise that they did concede defeat, given the fact that both of them had the endorsement of Donald Trump, who's sort of, I guess, our election denier in chief the past four years? Absolutely. And for all uh, intents and purposes, um, I mean, they said themselves that they may not. I mean, I can tell you that that, you know, time and again, when Tudor Dixon was asked, would she be okay with the results of the election? She dodged. And so I think all of us and and were, were sort of prepared for this, um, whether or not um, Gretchen Whitmer won, right, but whether or not the candidates who lost would be willing to concede and to concede as early as they did. And the fact is that two of these candidates have. I should uh, just correct myself that Donald Trump uh, denied election results for the past two years, not the past four. 
On an, on another note, Christina Caramo, the Republican and uh, Trump-endorsed candidate who was running for Secretary of State, has yet to concede as we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. She was trailing the incumbent Jocelyn Benson by a wide margin and also spent last night claiming election fraud in Detroit and Ann Arbor. Guys, is there where is this going? Is there a path through which Christina Caramo could come back and claim a victory? Well, she could claim whatever she wants. Um, Would she actually gain a victory? I mean, we've seen judges already in these uh, election cases leading up to the election, throw them out of court, and sometimes in language that we could barely say on the radio. you know, that that I, I think that the fate of those sorts of challenges is almost or, or, or almost ordained. And there's one other thing, and this goes back to the earlier point about conceding happening today because of the amount that the Democrats won by. Like these were not close races, right, when you look at them. And again, because, as Rick said, this historic nature of the state house, the state senate, governor, secretary of state, AG, it makes it more difficult to suddenly say, oh, well, this one election. Right. Right. And and so when you have two of these other uh, candidates conceding and you're going to be the holdout, it's like, well, wait, are you saying there was voter fraud everywhere or nowhere? Or how are you going to square those two things together? It's very difficult to comprehend that situation. But let's not forget that this is not the end of the game. These results are still unofficial, that they need to be certified by the Michigan Board of State Canvassers. And so we could see... Wait, wait. I think I'm getting a a flashback to uh, the last round of elections when there were big fracases on the Wayne County and State Board of Canvassers Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. election certification. So, I mean, there's there's no guarantee that we're not going to see, especially, you know, with with the margin in the State House being so slim, that uh, we won't see some of these results challenged. You guys, I just have to roll it back to the legislative shift yeah. last night. Rick, how weird is this for you? I mean, you've <laughs> you, this is not your first time at the uh, at the politics coverage rodeo, and th- we've never had this environment in Lansing all this time. No, I mean it is a cultural reality in Lansing that um, governors will come and go of both parties, that the House will shift back and forth between Republicans and Democrats, although, you know, it's it's been in Republican hands for a while. But the state Senate is the Republican firewall, regardless of who the governor is, is, regardless of who is in control of the state House. And I, I should point out that that was engineered decades ago by one John Engler, future governor, who um, used uh, special elections for uh, two seats to topple Democratic control in Lansing, governor, House and Senate, um, which led, which which started his path to the uh, governor's office. Yeah. One of the things I'm fascinated by is just the absolute infrastructure and how Democrats are going to build up that infrastructure. And I ain't talking about roads. I'm talking about jobs. Again, this goes back to this idea that for 40 years there hasn't been this trifecta and how many folks in Lansing haven't lived through this. I was thinking last night about sort of who to call, right? Like, remind us what things were like. 
there's not that many people who are still operating in Lansing, be it lawmakers or journalists, who can give us that view of what it was like in Michigan. And so that, again, is just this fundamental change. Well, what would you expect to see? I mean, surely we're not in a situation where simply the legislature proposes and Gretchen Whitmer disposes. Right, right. I mean, it seems like there's possibility for inter-party Funny squabbles you here. you ask, April Bear, <laughs> because I believe one Rick Pluto has been thinking a lot about this and, in fact did a story about this very specific idea about what Democrats would do. And you did this just last week. Mm-hmm. So and it, it just occurred to me because it seemed like a possibility, although last week it, it was almost a, a thought exercise because, you know, who would have dreamed that it would actually happen? No, it, 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 deems, it did seem possible. And so it did seem worth talking about. And so I'll, I'll just back into it. Issues, I mean, 40 years of issues that um, right to work, um, union dues checkoffs, um, all kinds of education policy. Prevailing the, wage, gun pre- safety. Gun safety, um, LGBTQ rights, expanding the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act to uh, include that. So those are all the sorts of things, plus things that are a lot more minute. What's happening, though, right now, um, maybe not starting today because everyone's exhausted, but starting tomorrow, that um, there are going to be races for leadership positions in um, the House and the Senate Democratic caucuses, that uh, one of the things that they're going to start talking about is what are the priorities? What things do they want to do first? How do they want to stack them? Do they want to go big or are they going to be concerned about going so big that they alienate voters back in their districts and put these hard won majorities um, in jeopardy. And they're going to talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. But uh, they've got what? So two months, you know, basically by the time you get back from Thanksgiving to choose their leaders, to make plans on what they want to do first, to name committee chairs who are going to be very, very powerful in terms of how they set those priorities and not to mention what they want to do. So a lot going on. And you know, like we said, a 40-year wish list. Were there any bright spots for the Republican ticket last night? Yeah, I think one candidate to think about is John James, a Republican. Uh, earlier today, uh, the Democrat Karl Malinga conceded. John James is going to be um, a black con- Republican congressman representing Michigan. And I think he's got a lot of uh, Republican boosters here in the state. I-, I would be very interested in watching his future representing parts of Michigan and, and wider. Just a brief, brief tidbit uh, from last night. There were hundreds and hundreds of students waiting hours in line, both at Michigan State and East Lansing and the U of M to register to vote and then to vote. As long as they were in line by 8 p.m., they were allowed to stay. Some people waited until 2 a.m. to do so. Mm -hmm. We had this procedural question we were kicking around this morning. So if you're in line at midnight, technically it's the next day. Can you still register to vote at 1 a.m. the day after Election Day and legally cast a ballot? Um, Unexplored terrain. It's a great question because if you are in, you know, we have same day registration and the idea is that you can register and then just go off and vote with lines like this. Who knows? It it, it could be uh, litigated and decided uh, either way. Michigan Radio's Zoe Clark and Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, April. Thanks for asking. 
With wins for statewide office holders and a few key legislative victories, Democrats will next year be in control of both of Michigan's legislative chambers and the executive branch of the government. With us to talk through some of last night's big stories are two of our favorite politics thinkers, Adrian Heeman, co-founder and partner at Grassroots Midwest, a former aide to several elected Democrats, and John Selleck, the head of Harbor Strategic and in the past advisor for a number of Republican office holders. They sometimes work together as the civil discourse superhero duo, baldly bipartisan, facilitating conversations about Michigan politics. Guys, how we doing? We should have hired you as our PR person a long time Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. You're a great hype man. If this journalism <laughs> thing doesn't work out... Uh, wow, you two. I think the last time Michigan's Michigan's Democrats were in full control like this, I was begging my parents to buy me a single spangled glove and practicing my moonwalk. What just happened? I think this um, this was the worst day in the history of the modern history of the Michigan GOP. Um, you know, it was cataclysmic and it should not have been that way. Um, you know, the there were just a series of missteps really throughout the last 12 months, going back to their primary process that brought this all to fruition. Um, but it was a very, very bad night um, for the GOP on a night that should not have been a bad night for them. Yeah, that's right. And I think on the bright side, maybe what we're seeing is a change or maybe we should tip our hat to voters. They've actually started to figure out, hey, wait a minute, uh, all you pollsters and politicos, I can separate when a state level candidate is not responsible for inflation. And I can separate an Alyssa Slotkin federal candidate uh, from President Biden. Um, He's the one responsible for some of these things, not necessarily her. John, did anything strike you about which regions, I I know you're a great student of geography and politics, which regions ended up being consequential in the legislative flip? Yeah, I mean, the easiest one to look at is Kent County, West Michigan around Grand Rapids. Uh, a 100% flip from a GOP-dominated area under the old maps to a, a almost 100%-dominated Democrat area. They even almost pulled off a theft of a state Senate seat uh, by Dave LeGrand over Mark Heisinger. They The GOP saved that one. That has one of the biggest impacts right away because there's five seats going the other direction in a part of the state that is departing the GOP slowly but surely. I, uh, Adrian, I'm thinking about the ways in which Michigan Democrats have relied on the Metro Detroit vote uh, for for many, many years in a lot of different circumstances. And I don't know that that was really different last night. But what what else did you see going on in Metro Detroit, maybe the three county area that you think was consequential? You know, I think one of the things that we're going to be talking more about as we dig into the results and we get full results is once again the diminished political importance of the state's largest city. Unfortunately, um, the city of Detroit's only about six hundred thousand people now. Um, the, Governor Whitmer was not powered to victory by the city of Detroit in any way, shape, or form. She was powered to victory by Oakland County um, because that's the the growing part of Metro Detroit. Um, And, you know, we're going to talk about that more when we start talking about state legislative districts and the political power of the state's largest city being diminished by being carved up into, you know, in order to make more competitive um, state house and state Senate districts. So, you know, Democrats gain is in some sense the city of Detroit's loss. Yeah, and I'll add in that just to be a West Michigan hype man. But that same thing is happening in Grand Rapids, Kent County. It's the only part of the state, April, that's actually growing. And a lot of it is in-state migration. But nonetheless, it's growing and, it, and it's moving toward Democrats. 
With respect to uh, what may happen uh, with the power shift in Lansing, I want to ask you a two-part question. What should be on the Democrats' agenda once the legislature convenes after the first of the year? And what will be on their agenda? This is going to be sort of like that Oscars question where who should win and who will win. Adrian, you want to start us out? Well, if there's one thing that should be a takeaway for both parties from this election, it's don't do weird stuff, right? Um, What the Democrats' agenda should be is addressing issues that are top of mind for voters, um, for the citizens of Michigan. So that means inflation. It means clean drinking water. Uh, You know, it, it means sort of basic kitchen table issues. And frankly, they need to take some action on some of the issues that they ran on, like guns. Right. Um, I think that guns is an issue where if they don't get too far out there, they can accomplish some policy wins that will be broadly popular. What they shouldn't do is weird stuff. They shouldn't try and reach too far to the left. Um, You know, they ran on a pretty centrist message this time. And if they execute on it, I think the voters will reward them. Okay, wait a minute. Don't do weird stuff. That's a tall order in in the year 2022. First of all, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you put guns in there in that we know that, the, okay, yes, there is constituency for uh, safe safe storage laws, for example, and things of that nature. But I don't remember I don't remember any Democrats running on gun safety or or gun storage even and getting many victories. I don't know. You really think that's that's something that that the electorate that just put Democrats in power is going to call for? You know, I, again, as long as they don't overreach with it, right? If we're talking about things like safe storage, if we're talking about things like, you know, um, you know, closing loopholes around um, purchasing guns, if we're talking potentially about red flag laws, things that poll really well like that, I think that they can get some policy wins on that, again, because those are popular measures, right? But it's also very, very possible for them to overreach um, on the guns issue, like it is on a lot of issues um, that they campaigned on, right? I think the same thing is true with the environment, right? If the Democrats go jumping in with both feet to try and shut down line five, they're going to get punished for it. If the Democrats are focused on things like safe drinking water and replacing lead service lines, um, I think that, you know, the voters are likely to reward them for that. You know, I think we did see the question come up um, in particularly um, in the debates, but in particular zones in Axford in Oakland County is certainly one of those. Um, the Democratic Senate, uh, Victor uh, Rosemary Bear, uh, ran negative attack ads on the Republican GOP guy for being related to gun lobbyists in some fashion or another. So the issue's there, but I have to agree and pull one part of what out of what Adrian said, and it's that old-fashioned notion of fulfilling your campaign promises. And what every Democrat that was su- successful, from Governor Wimmer to Hillary Scolton um, to Dan Kildee, all the way down to those twin Senate districts in Macomb, they said, we're going to cut taxes. We're going to get rid of the retirement tax. That's what I would come flying out of the box with, because the fight they're going to face is the battle within their own party. What's the real split inside the party of those who got elected? Is it a primarily progressive caucus or is there a good chunk of like sort of pro-union, more conservative folks? What kind of battle will they have internally? Because there's a lot of pent-up aggression there. They haven't been in charge of anything in the legislature for a long time. If you're just joining us, we're talking election results with Adrian Hemond, co-founder and partner at Grassroots Midwest and a former aide to several elected Democrats, and John Selleck. He's the head of Harbor Strategic, in the past advisor for a number of Republican office holders. Uh, gentlemen, let's get into some of the congressional races, which were plenty interesting 
yesterday. Is there anything that you learned about Michigan's redrawn congressional districts that maybe you didn't know yesterday morning? We had pretty close margins, but wins for a lot of incumbents. Adrian, what did you see? Yeah, I think one thing that we learned is that, um, you know, we're uh, the 10th congressional district is really closely drawn and Democrats probably dropped the ball in not having a stronger recruit there or not putting more resources behind Carl Marlinga. And I think the reverse is kind of true in the new 8th congressional district. Right. This is also very closely drawn. It's trending away from Democrats and Republicans probably dropped the ball, not having more of a homegrown nominee there. Somebody like, you know, John Molinar, who moved a few miles to the West to run in a safe district. Somebody like John's former boss, Bill Schutte. Republicans probably could have taken that district last night, even with all of the Dem wins up and down the ballot, if they'd had just a little bit stronger candidate. And Democrats certainly could have taken that new um, 10th congressional district if they'd either put, you know, another million dollars into Carl Marlinga or if Andy Levin had been their candidate. And just to catch people up, the 10th district is that largely Macomb County district where Democrat Carl Marlinga has conceded to his Republican opponent, John James. Also in the 8th district, it's been called now for Democratic incumbent Dan Kildee. His redrawn district includes his home base of Flint and now includes more competitive areas around Saginaw and Midland. You know, uh, John, we've sort of been talking about the redistricting process with a, a baked in assumption that if if there are more gerrymandered seats, more safe seats, that, that makes it a lot harder in Washington for things to get done. Are close races a good thing here in Michigan in terms of, you know, just political uh, political consensus or the kind of decision making that has to happen in Lansing? Um, it has its ups and downs, but basically those people are going to have a much closer eye on re-election, right? So they're going to be maybe listening to the public a little bit more. The problem is that the public is more polarized than it's ever been. <laughs> so they end up having to sort of pick one side or, or another anyway. It's just made things much more complicated. But for all the good feelings for some people that um, gerrymandering was undone, a new vor- version of gerrymandering is done based on let's have 50-50 districts. Let's value waterfront districts over having African-Americans represent Michigan and African-Americans in Congress. Those things kind of got like wiped out by the wayside. Uh, And that biggest side effect is just the absolute blizzard of money, most of it dark money, and and we don't know where it comes from. Yeah, we should talk more about that. But uh, I don't know, Adrian, are you looking forward to, uh, you know, more more closely, more closely fought districts and, and races that are just a lot more a lot a lot closer than they have been in Michigan's past? I mean, look, personally, it's great for me, right? Um, It's great for our business. But um, I do think that the because the redistricting commission has prioritized political competitiveness, it does give some opportunities to people who genuinely want to be sort of moderate bridge builders. And I think that that's true on both sides of the aisle. I'm also wondering if we learned anything broader about the health and well-being of Michigan's two major parties last night. I mean, we knew that the state GOP is under a strong Trump influence. The The margins that we saw last night, John, do you think they qualify as an overt repudiation of the state party leadership right now? Um, I think that if you look back over the, the history of the GOP in Michigan since Donald Trump's shocking, surprising upset win, in 2016, uh, in 2018, uh, Gretchen Whitmer and the other statewides got elected as Democrats. Um, in 2020, Joe Biden won. And now in 2022, we had a complete sweep of every part of the state of Michigan's government. 
Um, it's hard to argue that that's going well. Yeah. Adrian, what do you think? I mean, if there is a Republican who can unite and maybe turn things around within the GOP, is that going to be like a party chair or a candidate? I don't know. But who could who could turn things around or at least maybe bring the factions to heel? Looks like Peter Meyer. Um, the uh, I think that if the Michigan GOP is smart, the Peter Meyer for governor campaign um, started uh about 8 a.m. this morning. But he was um, not on the know, ballot. The, but he was not uh, on the ballot last night because he didn't make it past John Gibbs in the Republican primary. That's exactly right. John Gibbs was yet another Trump endorsed candidate that was left for dead by the Michigan GOP, um, partly because he was a bad candidate and engendered no enthusiasm from the funders. Um, Peter Meyer is a different story. He starts with a financial base of his own. He was quite popular with the funders. Who he wasn't popular with was the former president. There is a question in my mind about what's going on on the Democratic side, too. We talked a little bit about Detroit, Adrian, and and what happened. I mean, this is maybe less because of the vote, but more because of the redistricting commission. This was uh, this was a year when Detroit, you know, just suddenly does not have black representation for the first time in most people's living memory and in Congress and largely in the state legislature as well. Um whether or not, you know, whether or not Detroit as a place continues to be important, I mean, it's it seems like black voters probably will continue to be important to the Democratic Party. What would it take for for these voters to be heard within the structures in the congressional districts that we have right now? Or is that even something that that, you know, is in is on decision makers minds as political season happens? Well, I, I don't think it's particularly on decision makers' minds right now. It certainly wasn't on the redistricting commission's mind when they drew these maps, right? But um, ultimately, um, you know, this is going to fall down um, to black voters being able to organize. But that's not just in the city of Detroit, right? Part of the reason um, that we're at where we're at is um, only about half of us in the state actually live in the city of Detroit. Um, the other half of us do not, right? And so there is an opportunity for a lot of organizing. Part of the reason that these districts got drawn the way that they did, right, is a lot of black voters have moved out of the city of Detroit over the last couple of decades um, into Southern Oakland County, into parts of Macomb County, into Western Wayne, which is made uh, is part of what is made uh, drawing these politically competitive districts that include parts of the city of Detroit possible. And that's got implications for how Lansing works, certainly in the state legislature, you know, whether or not um, black voters are successful in that sort of political organizing, the political power of the city of Detroit has certainly been diminished. Yeah. Guys, you're both messaging people. Is there a message that political parties in the state could take away or should take away from last night? John, what do you think? Well, the Democrats made it clear from very early on the pollster that serves President Biden also serves uh, Governor Whitmer, and he was shouting from the rooftops back in January to the D.C. Democrats, please pass some law. Show that you're the people that can actually get some stuff done, even if people don't totally agree with it. People are so frustrated because they don't feel like anything's happening. Chaos, bad. Uh, eventually, Washington sort of got the message. Um, they passed some stuff. But Governor Whitmer had that going uh, since the end of last year, frankly. I think she was able to carve out that place for herself where her approval rating was constantly running at least 10 points ahead of Joe Biden's. Um, and her numbers ended up running far ahead of Joe Biden's. 
And that is the message that a lot of these other Democrats who won that we've talked about so far today have used. So now they're going to actually have to follow through on that. And I think that'll be for the Democrats are hoping that Governor Whitmer keeps that in check. That's where that kind of struggle between, oh, wait, we're in charge now. We could do whatever we want. It's like if you were at home and your parents were gone, they're like, oh, wait, I can watch all those movies on HBO and I can eat all the ice cream. I can do anything for the first time. Let's do it. The Democrats need to not do that. They need to get off to a good start and follow what the governor and the president's pollster said is find some things and get them done to at least give that good initial impression. Guys, this is your dad calling. Don't just eat the ice cream. Adrian, what do you think? What is what is the message that that you think absolutely cannot be denied after last night? John's right. You need to do stuff. It shouldn't be weird stuff. Right. Um, that's what the former president got punished for. As John pointed out, um, the GOP has been on a heck of a run. Not a good one since the former president got inaugurated um, because the, pre- the former president got into office on a promise to do stuff. And then he did weird stuff. Um, and the voters didn't like it, and they punished Republicans for it. And now Democrats have got a lot of power um, in Michigan, and they do need to do stuff because they promised the voters that they would, but it shouldn't be weird stuff. That's part of the message from last night. Um, it's part of you know this narrative that we're going to be talking about a lot for the next several weeks about how the GOP in Michigan fumbled this historic opportunity Um, It's because Democrats were more successful in portraying themselves as the less weird party. You two make it sound so simple. Adrian Hemond of Grassroots (laughs) of Grassroots Midwest and John Selleck of Harbor Strategic, sometimes seen around the state as boldly bipartisan. Guys, thank you so much. It's great to see you and hear you. Thank you, April. Thanks for having us. We need to take a break. Back in just a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's Stateside Podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Last night, voters in and around Grand Rapids made history. The 3rd Congressional District has chosen a woman to send to D.C. for the first time ever. Hillary Skolton is an attorney who's worked for both the U.S. Department of Justice and, more recently, the Michigan Immigrant Rights Center. Her first run at Congress against Republican Peter Meyer was not successful. But now she's bested a Trump-backed Republican, John Gibbs, and her margin of victory stood at a healthy 13 percent with all but 3 percent of ballots counted. West Michigan reporter Dustin Dwyer from our newsroom joins us now. Hey, Dustin. Hey, April. So this is a historic win, of course, because Hillary Skolton is the first woman to hold the seat. It's also been several decades since a Democrat has represented Grand Rapids in Congress. Anything this tells us about change in the district? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a huge win for the Democrats. As you said, the, 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 the last Democrat who held the seat in Grand Rapids was, was Richard Vanderveen in 1977. He was elected after Watergate, you know, when Gerald Ford went to the White House. Um, and before that, it, you know, there was 
it had been another 50 years since the prior Democrat. This is only the second Democrat in 100 years to serve in this seat. Um, one thing that shows is that the district was redrawn um, because of redistricting. So it's a different shape to this district than it was during the last election when Hillary Skolton ran. But I think also Hillary Skolton has said this from the first time she ran in the last election. She just sees the district changing. Um, in particular, the city of Grand Rapids and Kent County has been moving more toward you know, more moderate and, and and even more liberal. And that's really benefited the Democrats. And you saw that actually in the results, not just in the third district. I mean, the Kent County results, it's gone from kind of a swing district to just really a strong county for Democrats up and down the ballot. So absolutely, you see changes in this area. Huh. Hillary Skolton's victory speech wasn't last night uh, because <laughs> because it was late. Uh, she actually gave her victory yeah. speech today. What What else did she talk about? Well, she first off, it was just it was an emotional speech for her and for really everyone there. She she is the first woman to represent Grand Rapids in Congress. She's not the first woman to represent West Michigan in Congress. That was Ruth Thompson, um, who was from just north of Muskegon. She served as a Republican in the 1950s, but the first woman to ever serve in Grand Rapids. And and that was important because of what was on the ballot this election, you know, and that was something Skolton talked about a lot, the importance for her of, you know, securing a woman's right and a young girl's right over her own body. Um, that was on a lot of voters' minds, and it was certainly on a lot of minds in the room today. So when she said, you know, it was the honor of her lifetime to be able to serve as the first woman congressman, congresswoman in West Michigan, she talked about her values, about supporting people, you know, um, about not having a government tell you who you can love. Um, these are you know, values that are important to her and, and values that are important to her supporters, but they're not always values that have been talked about from the representatives in West Michigan and, and in Grand Rapids in particular. So it was a, it was an emotional speech. It was um, it was a really um, exciting speech for her supporters. Dustin, one of the most unusual turns in the race came in the primary stage when the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee put cash into the primary, not for Hillary Skolton, but into the Republican mm -hmm. primary, it, it wasn't, you know, the, the, these ads were not direct, directly aimed at Peter Meyer, but they were in support of his Trump-backed opponent, John Gibbs, a, a conservative. They were betting on the fact that Democrat Skolton would have a better shot of beating Gibbs than of beating Peter Meyer, who she lost to last time. Uh, it seems to have worked out for them. Do you think the yeah, race would have yeah. been closer if Peter Meyer had been in it? Absolutely. And to be clear, those ads, um, they were they were still attack ads. I mean, they were calling John Gibbs too extreme, but they were raising John Gibbs profile at a time that his campaign didn't have a lot of money. And Peter Meyer, you know, he's Peter Meyer. I mean, <laughs> he's got as much money as he wants. Um, so so he was really the, the, the person to beat. He's the incumbent. He had plenty of plenty of money for this campaign. He had name recognition. John Gibbs was really unknown in this district. And this ad from the from the Democratic Congressional Committee really raised his profile. And though it was an attack ad, it um, it raised his profile in West Michigan and and potentially helped him win in this primary. So I was looking at results last night for some of the precincts and some of the suburbs around Grand Rapids. And you saw, like, I was looking at 
Cascade Township, which is a, a suburb of Grand Rapids. It's fairly affluent, fairly conservative, but moderately conservative. That's an area that Peter Meyer did really well in in 2020 and just absolutely defeated Hillary Scolton. Not a big area for Donald Trump, though. Donald Trump lost Cascade Township in 2020 while Peter Meyer won it. Well, this time, with a John Gibbs in the race, which who was very tied to Donald Trump, served in the Trump administration, Gibbs lost Cascade Township. Hillary Scolton won. So you look at results like that and you do have to say um, their strategy here really worked. They picked off moderate Republican voters. Hillary Scolton talks about this. She has so many people, she says, who she was their first Democrat they ever voted for. So um, that strategy absolutely paid off for them. And it was a huge, huge, huge victory. So that's the other thing here. Even if Meyer had been in the race, it might be closer. But a 13-point victory for Scolton, she might have won anyway. Do you think we've seen the last of Peter Meyer in Michigan politics? Good question. I don't know. (laughs) I really don't. (laughs) Thank you so much. Dustin Dwyer reporting from the Grand Rapids Bureau in West Michigan. Dustin, we appreciate it. Get some sleep. (laughs) Thank you. I will. National polling suggested that what voters care about in 2022 more than anything else were economic issues. The logic follows that Republicans were poised to make gains after months of hammering on executives like Joe Biden and Gretchen Whitmer for inflation and consumer prices. But history may ultimately remember 2022 as the year when Michigan voters stood up for abortion rights. Ours was one of several states that voted on reproductive issues, in this case, a plan to embed a range of health care in the state's constitution, including abortion. Danielle Atkinson is the founding director of Mothering Justice, which came together with Planned Parenthood and the ACLU of Michigan to campaign for Prop 3. It passed last night on a 13 percent margin. Danielle, welcome back to Stateside. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Hey, before we talk about reproductive rights, I think congratulations are in order. I believe you won a seat on the Wayne State Board of Governors yesterday. Yeah, so they just announced it. And yes, I will be um, I will be the newest member of the Wayne State Board of Governors. Really excited about it. Can I ask what you hope to to bring to the board? Yeah, I think a perspective um, of a, you know, as when I was in school, um, it was really difficult for me. Both my parents were diagnosed with cancer. I'm the first generation um, in this country. And, you know, I really tried to follow my sister's example, who, you know, she was the first generation uh, person in our family to go to college. And so, um, you know, I, I'm very familiar with being an unconventional student, a student athlete. And, you know, the work that I do and the passion that I've had my entire uh, professional career around workers' rights. Um, so I really hope to bring that perspective to the board uh, and lead from a, a place of, um, of service and following the lead of the people that have dedicated their lives to the service of students on the on the campus, and then also the students themselves. I suppose, uh, not to mention uh, the perspective of students who may be uh, parents at the same time. So thank you for, thank you for all that. Exactly. Let's turn now to Prop Three. When did when did you know that it was that it was going to pass yesterday? Yeah, I was at an after party, and um, the deputy campaign manager for the campaign came in. You know, just elated, but also just so relieved, Shanae um, uh, Whitaker, um, that it had passed. And, you know, her story is amazing if you if you are able to hear it. Um, and it's the story that so many of us share around just 
difficulties with pregnancies and difficulty uh, with life situations that led you to make a very personal, um, private decision. And so she used that as, as a catalyst um, to, you know, ensure the rights of so many of us in the state. And that moment was just so glorious. And again, just so, you know, just a relief. Talking to voters around the state, it it, it seems hard to not, not hard to overstate, but it, we just we just can't discount the the fact that there were voters who came out just to vote on Prop Three this year. That said, were there places in Michigan that voted for it that you weren't necessarily expecting? You know, when it comes down to it, when we really, you know, I think this issue a year ago versus this issue right now, we're at a completely different place. It was more theoretical. It was more um, just something that you could you could have an opinion about without really having to think about whether or not your decision or your say in it took away rights from someone else. And so, you know, the conversation that we were having today I wasn't surprised. I really wasn't. I was uh, on election day. I was at a polling location in Detroit and I saw like young women, older women, men all saying that they wanted to make sure that um, this was a right that they could have, that their children could have, that their family members could have because it's so basic. And so, yeah, I think the conversation has completely changed and I wasn't surprised by, you know, the supporters. Was there any place in the state that you can think of that turned out to be particularly pivotal? Um, I think, you know, Oakland County and just the enthusiasm, always Detroit, um, you know, just it it always surprises us. But um, I was speaking to the mayor of Ferndale and she was just talking about tremendous turnout and tremendous early turnout. Um, You know, people wanted to make sure that they were able to vote for this. They didn't want to wait till the last minute and they wanted to make sure that they had a say. Would you expect that there will be challenges to to Prop 3's language now that it is a part of Michigan's constitution? Yeah, you know, this is not an opposition that goes away. Um, and so we will always have to fight this fight. Um, we, I think what the opposition likes to do is they like to nibble around uh, the edges of our rights and our freedoms and um, protections that we have underneath under the law. And the people that are the most harmed by this are people who are, one, in the most vulnerable time in their life, and then two, people are the, who are the most marginalized in society. So we have to keep fighting and we have to fight against any attack or erosion of our rights. I guess what I'm curious about is what kind of challenges would you expect to to spend energy on? Yeah, I think we have to, you know, the I was speaking to a medical student uh, yesterday and she said she was concerned about um, the broadness. Right. And, and that was intentional uh, when crafting it. And I'm not a lawyer by any means. Um, but she this medical student was concerned about the. Uh, how broad the the the, the wording was, um, and the possibility for uh, the opposition to come in and and to um, to use the language against us, what we used as really broad and inclusive language uh, around the protections uh, to to hurt us. So I'm, I I couldn't even 
begin to imagine uh, how they would do that, but it was a very interesting conversation. So I did ask her if we could have a conversation, uh, you know, later in the week, maybe next week about her concerns, but I really trust and am confident that um, our advocates uh, in the legislature, in the advocacy, advocacy community, uh, Planned Parenthood are prepared for, for any fight ahead. And um, I'm really heartened with the fact that we also won the legislature um, last night as well. And I believe that uh, they are committed, along with the governors, committed to ensuring protections for uh, for uh, people who need health care. Yeah. Um, Danielle, I, M- Mothering Justice's mission is all about speaking for moms and, and their children, of course, who are in who are in our communities of color. Yeah. And I'm I'm just thinking I'm thinking about everything that we heard this election was going to be about in the weeks and months before that that the economy was a huge focus for voters that that people wanted to you know that there were aspects of the culture wars that were coming into play that inflation yeah. and and all of that was and and in Michigan I mean maybe maybe this is just a case of of you know all politics being local but it's it seems hard to get around the fact that reproductive rights were a driver in this election. And we we were talking with a, a someone who conducted a study with voters in Detroit where ab- abortion really wasn't in the top 3 issues that that voters in the city mentioned. I I think what I'm wrestling with here is um it seems that this maybe is an issue that really that really does matter to to women of color and voters of color as they're as they're entering the ballot box, even when the larger narratives of the election appear to be driven toward very different things. Is there a path after this election where either party could could get closer to the heart? of the issues that that I guess you're the constituents of mothering justice really are have on their minds and really care about. Yeah, I mean I love that question and I just love um the way you got to it because you know we were feeling the same way at mothering justice um going into this election um and just the the choices and the um, the choices that were laid out before us around why, pe- you know, people's motivations just didn't seem to resonate with us. Right. Um, so two things. One, um, reproductive justice is a three legged stool. Um, it's the ability to have a child, the ability to not have a child and the ability to parent in a safe environment. And then two, you know, we did an exit survey of caregivers or people who identified as caregivers. Um, and we, we talked to about 500 people yesterday. Um, and one, uh, people resonate with the term caregiver, even if they didn't have children, they resonated with that term, whether it be someone in their community, whether it be, um, uh, an elderly, uh, family member that they were taking care of, or even a teacher who's like, I don't have any children, but I consider myself uh, a professional caregiver. And so when there are threats, um, to, uh, the people that they feel like they take care of, that is, that is what motivates people. Um, and so, yeah, you know, people might not say, that they are going to the polls for reproductive justice, but they're going in the role of a caregiver. Um, We also ask people about 
what do they feel the economy means? You know, because we hear that all the time. We hear the economy is the number one issue for voters. Um, I feel like that's on every poll, that's the number one issue. And so we really wanted to get to the heart of what people were thinking that word meant. And, you know, resoundingly, people were saying the ability to take care of people who were in the most need. And so I think, you know, when we're talking about all of these subject matters, we have to realize they're so interconnected. And reproductive justice is on our agenda for a number of reasons. And abortion access is on our agenda because it's a financial stability um, question. Whether or not I'm able to take care of the people that count on me the most, if I have another burden um, that's inflicted, you know, that that's something that I didn't sign up for. So they're so interconnected and we have to be very curious and nuanced in our questioning. Danielle Atkinson of Mothering Justice. Danielle, it's great talking to you. Thank you for making a little time for us today. You as well. Thank you so much. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's episode was produced by Ronia Cabansag. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music for the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>